0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC.
1: Hello and welcome to this edition of Fishology. As always here in Fishology, we like to go in-depth analysis on advanced stats and metrics that you will not find anywhere else. Dedicated to the Miami Marlins. As always, I am Daniel, your host, and I am joined by two esteemed colleagues, as always, Mr. Eli Sussman, Mr. Lewis Hideo Weiss. How are you guys feeling for this episode?
2: We are at the end of, by far, the most satisfying, thrilling month of this Marlins offseason. And, I, yeah, so I've been... Begging for this for a while to finally get a clearer look at how this team comes together. And as we are kind of creeping up on spring training, we got a very clear idea. So we could like go into these final few moves about how these pieces fit together heading into 2023. I'm fired up.
0: Yeah, I think that narrative has definitely shifted. I think we can all agree that where the Marlins were two months ago relative to the moves they made in the drop the pushback from the fan base that they weren't really doing anything that like Eli kind of prefaced this last month has been busy, busy, busy. And um, I definitely think Sherman and Kim were right when they said that the roster would look a little bit different on opening day, but I think it's going to look a lot different with uh, some of what we're going to talk about tonight.
2: And I guarantee you the, the, the team will look different on opening day.
1: Yeah. And really quickly before we really get into any of the topics Um, Announced the other day, Jazz being the cover of MLB The Show 23. How do you guys feel about that, having that notoriety to the Marlins and having a player that's going to be seen all over the world?
2: Well, we should get into the analytical side of it and start with the the criticism that I think is kind of well-deserved about just how his resume is a lot shorter as a major league player compared to guys that typically get on the cover. MLB The Show has been around since like 2006, and during that time, it's usually – a reigning MVP or somebody that's a very probable MVP candidate for the upcoming year, just as an example, the last few years, Shohei Otani, Fernando Tatis Jr. Jazz as a guy in his career to so this point, who's not quite yet at five wins above replacement for his whole career. And unfortunately in both of his full seasons, he's missed significant time due to injury. And now he's, they obviously made this decision before the position switch but that adds even more uncertainty as to exactly what he's going to be moving forward. This was a big lean into his, the force of his personality. And that's something that's more difficult to quantify. But I guess you could look at the numbers on social media and the type of engagement that he brings. It is really almost unrivaled, certainly by any Marlon player, but very few guys around the game that had this kind of pull among the younger generation that are so popular among the younger generation. Um, from all backgrounds.
1: Um, I was ecstatic. I couldn't like stop smiling, calling my family members, my little brother, especially because he plays a video game probably just as much as I do. So it's been
2: a crazy couple of months. So he's somebody that I'd be fascinated to see a couple months from now pre-orders for the game start next week. And I think it's officially delivered to people shortly before opening day at the end of March. I'd be fascinated to see the numbers on the other side of that as to how many copies of the game get moved this year. I wouldn't be surprised if it sells more copies than ever.
1: Lewis, how do you feel? I know this isn't analytical or stacked or anything, but I feel like it's a big deal for the organization uh, and, and for Jazz to have this type of honor where it's going to be seen for for years. And Eli mentioned on the list with guys like Judge, Otani, uh, Joe Maurer, David Ortiz,
0: guys like that. Yeah, David Wright too, if you really want to go back in the history of the show covers, um, Andrew McCutcheon in thirteen. Yeah, I, I mean, like, you know, I spoke to somebody who kind of gave me an inkling that this the the selection for this wasn't necessarily predicated on overall performative output. So you're not gonna get somebody like Tatis is an example who was incredible in the season plus or so that he had played, although again like jazz abbreviated before before he got the cover selection but it was like upper echelon high-end performance before he was selected and he had that um you know i guess the name and the potential attached to him i think jazz definitely has you know the potential as and that, that's one reason as to why maybe he is you know was a, a good choice at least in my approximation to be the cover but he is somebody that you can mark around like eli kind of said you're kind of going more on personality more than you are what he's done on the field. That being said, you know, he could come out and um, have, you know, an incredible season. He could, you know, be 2020. Um, he could, you know, make another all-star team and actually get to play. And people will understand this, but he just as a personality, I think is perfect. It kind of just reiterates the let the kids play motto where, and we saw it in the marketing for the game where, you know, the way that he grew up playing baseball in the Bahamas, it's so different from, from the way that the games played on Sandlots and just even organized leagues over here. So it's, I think that was definitely a selling point for some fans.
2: When I
1: was a little kid, we ran Sandlot games in the Bahamas. 6v6, no catchers, no umps, just hitting Good bombs. And having fun, we played to play.
0: For the Marlins, I think it gives them some nice, um, some nice embrace with a crowd that generally ignores them. And for good reason, there's plenty of reasons to score in the Marlins, I guess. But, you know, Jazz is exciting because, you know, there's a lot we haven't seen and what he already has given us leads us to believe that there's more to come.
1: And um, on the topic of Jazz, as you mentioned, that there is a positional change um, for Chisholm going from second base. Um, to center field. We, we did profile Jazz in one of our earlier episodes, one of our first episodes, talking to him more offensively with some defensive metrics. But this is the overall positional change going from the infield to arguably one of the toughest positions in baseball, center field. Eli, how do you feel like Jazz is going to be able to compete um, every day at, at center field position going from middle infield to all the way in the back? This
2: is entirely new. Uh, For him, the one comp that comes to mind for me, I've been like procrastinating putting this in an article form, breaking it down a little bit. Um, There is not a whole lot of precedent for guys who were signed and developed as middle infielders, debuted as middle infielders, and then switched to center field and actually stuck in center field for any sort of permanent period. And the one player that did do something very much like that is BJ Upton when he was with the Rays. He came up through their system as one of the very best prospects in baseball as a middle infielder. He had ups and downs with his bat, and in his early 20s, he converted to center field full-time. He had a really nice run over the next six years with the Rays as their everyday center fielder, as somebody that has a skill set that's very similar to Jazz. Great raw power. He had top-of-the-line speed, and that – allowed him to be a serviceable defensive center fielder, depending on what metrics you look at. Um, so that, that's what's a little complicated is comparing apples to apple, apples to oranges, is that he played before the stat cast era. We know he was really fast. We know he had good range. There's kind of some mixed statistical feedback as to whether he was a, a positive out there or whether he was maybe a slight negative during his career. But the the skill set is what reminds me a lot between B.J. Upton and Jazz Chisholm Jr., and for the most part, I mean, he, he was a pretty consistently above average everyday player for that team uh, throughout the late 2000s and the early 2010s. And he didn't move back. He never moved back to the infield. And in fact, he didn't move off of a center field until his early 30s at that point. Um, with Jazz, the upside is a little bit higher even because we've seen the kind of power that he has and his ability to pull the ball against even top end velocity so he's going to hit more home runs than somebody like BJ Upton ever did and i think even if he is a middling defensive player out there or even a slight negative out there in center field like he's
0: still going to be an all-star caliber player in terms of total value so a name that i actually just came to the to the, came into my head is a one that you know maybe hardcore baseball fans would be a bit more familiar with and you'd really have to deep dive um Larry Doby so when Larry Doby played in the Negro Leagues. He was a second baseman, shortstop. And when he got to the big leagues with Cleveland, he was obviously, as we know, uh, for those who don't know, he was the first African-American player to play in the Major Leagues. He debuted two months after Jackie Robinson in June of 1947. He was primarily a second baseman. And I believe um, he converted, with the help of Trish Speaker, who was a coach at the time, to center field or maybe a corner outfield spot. But he was one of those infielders who... Learn the outfield um, after primarily being an infielder and transition to become a very good one. Obviously, also an incredible player, Hall of Famer. There's more that you could be said. You can even, you know, if you want to do lesser examples, Ian Happ currently, who was a second baseman shortstop prospect coming up at the Cubs. So he kind of experimented doing both. Kevin Biggio to an extent, though that's more corner outfield. If you want to go back to the 80s, BJ Surhoff. Um, was a catcher. Craig Biggio played a lot of center field. Um, was also a second baseman, but was a catcher originally too. Um, those are comps. I think you know Jazz. I think Upton is probably the most, the closest you're going to get in terms of overall production to that point, relative to what he's done defensively and offensively, and what you can maybe project for him. Though, like I, like I, like you posited, I believe that Jazz has the potential to be a better. You know, overall player. Then, and we saw that he made those um, mechanical adjustments at the plate, being a little bit more selective early in the season before he got hurt. Um, yeah, I think B.J. Upton is probably the most apt comparison. Um, uh, if I find another one later, I'm sure I'll, I'll randomly send you guys a text at two in the morning to say it. But as of right now, I think I can't really think of anything better than what you just said.
2: I can't believe you dropped a Larry Doby. <laughs> I did. I didn't. I didn't know that about Larry Doby. I, I thought I knew his career pretty well this hinges so much. I've said this multiple times is how much the success of this team is going to hinge on jazz being, first of all, being available to play, but also being available and serviceable to play in center field and allow the several infielders veterans that they have, who simply don't have the physical traits to even fake it out there, allow them to stay in the infield. And if he is a missing piece out there, or if it's just, doesn't work out for him at all then it has this cascading effect this domino effect on the rest of the roster and uh, this is their solution to get as many quality bats into the lineup as possible and they're they're believing they're hoping that being able to do that will offset any of the issues that come up on the defensive side
0: and one more thing with jazz too as we should note um Garrett Cooper is not a long-term answer. Arise primarily played a lot of first base last year. If Jazz doesn't work out in center field and internally you want to make the move to get Arise at first and Cooper struggles offensively, you know, there's avenues that can present themselves should the circumstances fall into place. But if we want to talk about guys, even contemporary players or players who recently who we grew up watching that experimented playing both second base and, you know, the outfield, if not center field, why don't you look at? The Marlins manager himself, Skip Schumacher, a second baseman who has 119 career games in center field. So, like, there's somebody, John Jay, who recently just became a member of the coaching staff, played a lot of center field during the um, during his career. Who also a teammate of Skip's. John Birdie, who's experimented with playing everywhere from second base shortstop to center field and Corner spots as well, so he's got. I think he's got deviating from the analytics. I think you have a lot of voices that you can gotta go to that have done that, and that can maybe ease him into that transition. And and you know we'll see how that kind of manifests itself. But I definitely think he's not gonna be short on resources. He'll have plenty of people who can definitely help guide him in that transition. And you know, I think honestly, like if there's young guys there that are committed to winning long term here. That's an investment you want to make. We know one player doesn't make the entire difference in whether or not a team sinks or swims. But uh, for somebody like Jazz, who at this point is the marquee position player in this current franchise at the big league level, you want to make every investment that you can in him to ensure that he performs to the best of his abilities. And he has voices that he can go to for sure.
1: Um, with that, let's go on to our next topic. And what was the most recent um, acquisition for the Marlins? And that is a reliever swap. And you may be wondering who relieve, which reliever will go for who? Well, the Marlins acquiring Matt Barnes from the Boston Red Sox and cash considerations for Richard Blyer. Um, for Matt Barnes, he had a tail of two halves um, last season. Is uh, I believe he had around a 1.5 ERA in the second half um, and had, I believe, all his saves in the second half where the first half was just uh, a myriad of of just disaster for him. But he is a former World Series champion, a former All-Star. He had 24 saves, a career high in the 2021 season. Um, Lewis, react to this trade for the Marlins, and how do you think Matt Barnes can do in the NL East and on Lone Depot compared
0: to Fenway? First of all, I am shocked to see that Boston offloaded as much money to Barnes as they did to get essentially nothing out of him. But, I mean, that he's been there for the better part of a decade. I believe it was like nine seasons he spent with Boston. So it was time for them to make a move. I mean, they saw he struggled at the end of the season. We spoke to him on his introductory press conference, and he talked about, um, you know, some stuff that facilitated maybe some struggles he had in 2021, whether that was getting sick or overthrowing on a couple of road trips um, and since on the IL, that cost some time. I wasn't scared to walk a guy or two, but I would get away with it because
1: I could strike a guy out and, and use my stuff to get out of situations. Well, I didn't have
0: that stuff at the beginning of last year, which kind of just created a snowball effect but Barnes is, yeah. I mean, I definitely think Blyer will be missed to the degree that people actually like him. I and 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 I also want to use this as an opportunity to give Richard Blyer his due. I think, for all you know, for all the inconsistencies that plagued him at the outset of last season, the guy was nothing but dependable for Miami. I mean, 122 innings, a 133 ERA plus, a 3.12 FIP, a 3.16 ERA. He was tied with Jonathan LaWisega for 22nd in a best adjusted ERA plus in the big leagues. And he had a nice post um, thanking the Marlins for his time. And as he heads back to the American League East in this trade, but yeah, back to Barnes, I think Barnes's biggest skill set is, you know, and I tweeted about it yesterday, he just misses bats. And he said that sometimes he's had to do that out of necessity because he's gotten himself into jams. And we know that he kind of creates those for himself sometimes because he's not the best in terms of controlling uh, base runners, he does walk a lot of guys. His career whip is, I believe, over 1.3. So he has a, he has a propensity to allow uh, free passes from time to time. But I did a, a stat head search yesterday from 2028 to 2021. He ranked third in case per nine among relievers, minimum 200 innings pitched with 14.2 Ks per nine. And then I was like, all right, like he had a bad year last year, but he still put up good strikeout numbers. I believe it was around eleven or twelve Ks per nine. So I did eighteen to twenty-two, and I set the minimum at two hundred thirty innings pitched. Still ranks third with like thirteen point one strikeouts per nine. So the guy's biggest asset is obviously the high nineties fastball, um, that he likes to throw up in the zone. He talked a lot more that he started throwing a changeup more that facilitated his rebirth in the second half. Um, he just misses bats, and the Marlins didn't really have it. I mean. I think that him and Blyer can maybe replicate on field results as far as run prevention goes, but they're gonna get about it in different ways. Blyer's gonna get ground balls. Barnes is going to strike out the world when he has the ability to. Um, I think Miami did pretty well here with regards to how they fared. Um, you know, have not not having to pay him more than I believe it's like three million dollars, um, given that Boston shelved about five million of that. Eight million he was owed over after DFAing him, but yeah, you're looking at just a very consistent um, mm-hmm. pitcher who's always underperformed his uh, his FIP. You know, he's always been his ERA has always been higher because of the walks, and he is a little homer happy at times. But he's just a very good reliever. I think I would say, wouldn't say very good, but he's above average to where you know he gives you something that was largely lacking and that's the ability to miss bats. And I think that'll definitely aid Miami um, as we go into the season. Yeah. I'll start with where Lewis finished
2: there and and what he mentioned about how I like this trade as well. Like I think this is a very appropriate deal to get somebody that has the potential to miss bats for a bullpen that, at least among the returning pitchers, you have big questions about that. And some of the only guys that do miss bats in this bullpen have even worse control issues than Barnes does. Barnes could be the best reliever in this pen conceivably this year. But rewinding what Lewis also pointed out about what Barnes told us as the media is that he gave us this very specific inflection point in his career, which was the middle of that 2021 season. And I looked it up. It was this road trip in Toronto that was actually fairly late in uh august of 2021 and as daniel pointed out at the top he described 2022 as a tale of two halves and i think that's an oversimplification now that we've heard from him this is really a larger trends where you go back to late 2021 and since that point that's when the strikeout rate really fell precipitously from being elites of the elite to being league average ish even below league average if you go back to that point in 2021 that's why the red sox um were willing to pitch in as much money as they had to to offload him and that's why from boston's perspective they don't know if barnes is going to be any better than blire is moving forward because this has been a pretty significant stretch now going back parts of two seasons where he's not missing bats the same way you mentioned his fastball i think it's even more so to do with his curveball like by run value on Baseball Savants, that pitch in 2018, 2019, 2021, it was a, a great pitch. By run value, is was about 10 runs better than league average in each of those years. And then in 2022, it was a zero. It was just league average by all results in terms of whenever he threw it at any point in any plate appearance. It wasn't missing as many bats as before. He wasn't commanding it the same way. And even when he came back down the stretch, uh, the peripherals were not as sexy as that ERA was with him. There's a lot of risk here. He he kind of acknowledged that uh, the changeup will be a more significant part of his pitch mix than it used to be. By my eye test, so this is straying away from our fundamentals, by my eye test, his changeup does not look very good to me. It does not have a whole lot of late break on it. I don't see it being uh, missing bats. And I don't really seem commanding it that well in the small sample that I saw from last year either. It's a work in progress. And at age 32, is it suddenly going to improve more so than ever? It could because the Marlins are a, an, an amazing lab of pitching developments, especially when it comes to changeups. So I'll just say he's coming to the right place at the right time in his career. Um, I think the circumstances of this trade – Uh, should temper expectations. I think it should make it clear why it is that the Red Sox were willing to part with him because there is risk that he doesn't get back to who he used to be. And um, how much is his, I
1: believe he has a club option for the following year. And it's, I think he mentioned it was just a a large amount compared to what he is currently, or what even was that would happen to have that number just in case
2: it's going to be a minimum of 8 million on a club option for next year. And it could go up a little bit if he ends up actually finishing games and staying healthy this year, there are some bonuses in there. So that's one that they're unlikely to pick it up unless he fully bounces back unless he has a vintage Matt Barnes season. I don't see them paying eight plus million dollars a season for any particular individual reliever. I, I do think, I'll just reinforce again that I think this was the right decision to make at this time. And that was a good gamble to take. You look at free agency and there are other very middling relievers that get $8 million annual value on a multi-year deal, you know, relative to the market. This really isn't that bad. It would just be kind of uncharted territory for this front office, this front office with the Marlins in recent years, has gone as far as possible to not invest at all in their bullpen they just don't believe in allocating allocating resources toward yeah. proven veteran relievers so it'd be out of character to pick that up um at, at the end of the day uh, i think the position that they were in that this is a better fit than than Blyer was moving forward and I, so i think the question The rest of this offseason is potentially whether they pick up one more arm like this. There's a few still left in free agency. I think that's more likely than trade. Uh, I I don't think I'm alone in saying that they could use one more pitcher kind of with this type of upside to really make you
0: feel confident in the unit as a whole. I'm shocked they haven't taken a shot on Andrew Chafin. And I talked about him in our offseason shopping series. The guy's been nothing but consistent the past couple of years. I believe he opted out of his deal with Detroit after another relatively solid season. I mean, he's a soft-tossing lefty relative to – but he gives you a contrast to Steven Oakert, who, as you talked about, relievers that currently kind of coexist now with Barnes on this roster that have suspect control – um, Chaffin's one of those guys who is good at just placing them. He's, he's very good at locating his stuff. He's got very good command of his stuff. He doesn't throw all that hard. So he's able to do what he can. Um, and I'm sure his price tag has fallen after maybe not getting the offers that he thought he would at the outset of this offseason. Somebody, I think Miami could definitely use, gives them a different look in that open too. Um, yeah, I'm still, I mean, even with the addition of Barnes, I would still say that there's a level of concern with the overall, uh, effectiveness that this bullpen will have at some point in 2023, but I definitely think he's a marginal upgrade as was Gene Segura when the Marlins signed him to play uh third base. Um, I think, you know, Barnes presents that, but the peripherals say that he's going to be much better. And, you know, I think the Marlins have maybe become the modern day Pittsburgh pirates who at the start of the 2010s when they had Ray Searage and they were kind of just able to rehab guys at of Francisco, Ariana, Jay Happ, um they just kind of fixed guys they fixed ochre um i mean you want to go back a decade they fixed chad qualls for a little bit um so the marlins yeah they're with stoudemire you know now locked up long term um you know new manager and everything i think you know this is a good situation for barnes who also makes his home in fort myers um it'll it'll make for i think it'll make for a nice pairing and you know, whether or not he even lasts the season with the team remains to be seen, but if they can fix yeah. him, I mean, that's just, that's just another feather in the team's cap to what they've done on the pitching side of things like you attested to, Eli.
1: So you guys think, let's say he has um, a first half this season like he had in the second half of last season. Could he even be a trade candidate? Because you mentioned they don't want to pay these relievers, especially an $8 million potentially plus price tag. Could they flip him for something at the deadline? Is that even a possibility?
2: Of course. I mean, relievers are made to be traded, especially veteran relievers. (laughs) Um, That's a reality that he has to deal with at this stage of his career. It's always going to be short-term contracts and if the team itself is not competitive or not close enough to being competitive. Or if they just feel super confident in all these other young relievers that are on the 40-man roster – um, it's a weird roster composition with this Marlins C where they've allocated a lot of spots on their 40-man to guys that are relief-only types. And I, I don't know how to feel about it exactly, but it means that even the veteran guys like Barnes, like Dylan Floro, and even the ones going year-to-year year in arbitration like Tanner Scott, no, nobody is completely safe, uh, especially if the team is disappointing again for like a third straight year. A lot of it has to do with the context of the team as a whole. And they bring this guy in because of the upside, because he is one of the few relievers that they could obtain that maybe does, at least in terms of win probability added, if they put him in the right spots and he comes through in those situations, like that's a the guy that could swing multiple games, even within one half of one season, if he's thriving in those high-leverage situations. And that's the difference you you need if you're a team with slightly below average talent overall. That's the difference between being where they were exactly last year at the trade deadline and being a team that could be standing pad or buying at this deadline. You want to shoot for volatility if you're uh, organization in the Marlins position.
1: Yeah, so we we go from that acquisition of Matt Barnes and for uh, and Richard Blyer to probably the biggest one this offseason that we still have yet to talk about here on Fishology, and that is the Pablo Lopez. Luis Araya's trade involving Jose Salas um, and Byron Churio. One um, of his biggest trades the Marlins have made in a recent time, getting the batting champ, silver slugger, all that from the Minnesota Twins. Luis, talk to me. What do Marlins fans, uh, what should we expect from Araya's coming into this season at a new ballpark, new team?
0: Uh, well, Historically, I think if you look at park factors, you'll see that there's not that much of a difference in terms of uh, perspective on ballparks from Target Field to Lone Depot. They're relatively pitcher-friendly. But Arise is kind of just one of those guys that Eli kind of stated on Grant's State of the Fish Spaces on Twitter yesterday. You you can bet on him being consistent. I think Ben Clemens of Fangref said it best too, though I think his words have aged a little poorly, as we've a lot of us have seemed to come around on this trade, given what Miami initially gave up. I think you're just, they went out and they acquired batting average. They didn't acquire a premium defender, and he's going to be playing a position that generally most feel he may not be the most adept at. But, you know, you're kind of just foregoing that in a Jose otuve light way where you're just going to sacrifice the defense for the bat. And I think that's what you're going to get. And plus, you know, for a lineup that struck out as much as it did and is going to hoist guys like a Soler... A oh God, even Jazz to points. Obviously, Garcia, um, to a lighter extent, Gary Cooper, guys that you know you may see strike out a hundred plus times a season. Um, though that's not that foreign a concept now. It's good to get guys like a Segura and now and Arise who can and have the aptitude to put the ball in play, and that's something that I think that you like, and you like the fact that he. Is an aggressive hitter. I compared him and and it's maybe hyperbole to a young Tony Gwynn because their splits very early in their career are incredibly similar. You know, as far as OPS goes, um, batting average, all you know, kind of like things from a triple slash line perspective. You kind of say sit slightly similar player. I think a rise is going to be it'll, it's kind of like when they acquired D. Gordon, you know, a guy who is not in a speed sense, but he kind of just has a knack for finding holes, um, getting on base, being the aggressive hitter that he is and, you know, finding the holes that he does. I think, you know, it's, he's going to be welcome and I think he'll definitely be a fan favorite here because he's given us very little to think that he won't produce in Miami. You're not going to get power, but you're going to get consistent contact and you're going to get, you know, Betting averages flirting around 300 on a consistent basis. And I think that's what the Marlins went and did here. Um, as far as what they gave up, I'll leave that to Eli before I interject, um, you know, as to whether or not they overpaid. I think the more this kind of tr- develops itself, and Eli made a good point, you really need to evaluate trades where you're ac- acquiring, in this case, what we feel is a marquee player for premium talent that could manifest itself in the future. You kind of have to wait a couple of years and see how this plays out. Give it give a rise to the three years in Miami that he has under club control and give you know Pablo Lopez his time in Minnesota and the prospects to further develop for us to really come to a conclusion as to who really won this trade. But Eli, I want to leave that to you because I feel like you can provide some additional insight on that that our users may find uh valuable or listeners. Apologies.
2: Uh, this feels a little bit premature, but almost as soon as they required. Arise, Jeff McNeil signed an extension with the Mets. And McNeil is one of the few active players that is pretty comparable to Arise in terms of what they do offensively. Uh, It's not hard quality of contact, especially, but it's probably harder than you think it is. And the key is just so many line drives. He's somebody that you just do not shift against even when you were allowed to do so. And it didn't matter because he's not a he probably gets a misconception as being like this ground ball hit him where they ain't, but he's really just an absolute master of the craft of finding those gaps between the outfielders and the infielders and hitting those line drives, mostly for singles um, at a rate that is as good as anybody in the game. It just goes to his batting average. He is, he has solved as much as you can defensive alignment and finding those holes And the key is the line drives, the 30% line drive rate, whereas the MLB average is like 25%. And the reason why he's able to get pitches to hit line drives is because he does not swing and miss. He has a contact percentage every year, right around 90%. It was at like 93% last year, just so everyone's clear. That means when he swings the bat, 93% 93% of the time, there's some sort of contact made, whether it's a ball and play or a foul ball. And the league average is like three quarters, like 75. It is a huge difference that you'll notice immediately. When he doesn't wow. get balls to hit, he fouls the ball off. He works deep counts, more than four pitches per plate appearance. And the league average like 3.9. And he usually takes the first pitch of his at-bats as well. It's, it's, it's somebody that just has this very particular style that I don't see aging poorly anytime soon. And that's why I brought up McNeil, where a big factor in assessing this deal is on one hand, seeing how Pablo progresses with the twins, whether it's possible that he has his best seasons yet still ahead of him. And the entire careers of Jose Salas and Byron Churio are still ahead of them. Um, But, you know, that's not, doesn't really matter as much if arises a long-term piece of this Marlon scene has three years of club control remaining. And the McNeil extension sets a precedent for adding on a couple extra years of club control while only spending maybe 10, 11, 12 million per year on an annual basis for a player like this. That is in the context of major league baseball right now to get an everyday, a very good everyday caliber player long-term for that type of price would be an absolute steal. With him, he is such a safe player and he's the reason the reason why the Marlins targeted him in particular is because the floor is so high. He is he is just doing his thing. He is dancing to the beat of his own drum. He is playing in his own league. It doesn't really matter what anybody else does because he is so skilled at making contact and at making contact at a particular angle off the bat that it's so hard to defend that he's going to be a big asset to this offense. There are the limitations you mentioned already, uh, as well as the limitations as a base runner, some concerns about his durability as somebody who has had several knee issues and leg issues during his career, even a torn ACL going all the way back to the minors. Uh, As with anybody, availability is the most important thing, and he is not a lock to be available, um, even as somebody that is still so relatively young, entering his age 26 season. So I understand the deal. Uh, Yeah, My big issue was just looking at the total value that they gave up and understanding that this is not a contender yet. Somebody like a Jose Salas could have been a big piece of another deal to address another need, for a team that is still more than one piece away from being a true contender, especially in their current division. That was my main uh, issue with what they did here is that they, by standing firmer to what would've been a fair market value to acquire a rise, they'd leave themselves in position to make other subsequent moves to put this whole team together. So, I'm still in that position where I'm not going to back off of that stance. And I still have my concerns about how this whole team comes together. Uh, this guy is still going to be extremely compelling to watch. And I, I think he's just a very safe player. This is a team, this is a franchise, especially um, as, as we saw this past off season where they've made big splashes. And those splashes have not moved the needle whatsoever. In a couple of cases, Spending, going out of their way to acquire players that actually become net negatives and make the team worse. And with Arise, that's where he, I feel, is so much different than these other veteran acquisitions is that no matter what, he's going to make the team better. He is that safe. I'm going to put it on, on him to, I can guarantee it that this offense is going to be better this upcoming season and that Arise is going to be a big part of that.
1: Yeah, and with Arise, I'm just looking up some of the stats. Just someone that doesn't strike out. You look at last season, 50 walks to only 43 strikeouts. And I think that's something that the Marlins desperately needed. Someone who's not going to strike out. Someone who can get on base, walk. What we've seen the struggles with Jazz, um, his strikeouts. Um, Solaire, guys like that who, who strike out maybe a bit too much. And it's good to have someone like Arise who definitely probably be leadoff man, just getting on base, setting the tone um, for everyone else. And, um, Lewis, I want to get your opinion on just how Arise impacts maybe the offense aside from his batting average. Um, j- just talk to me how he also impacts that offense.
0: Well, I definitely think he's going to create more run scoring opportunities. I mean, if you insert a three seventy five on base, I believe he had three seventy four last year into your lineup or something close to that you know, inherently you think that the team is going to do better by effect. It's just a cause and effect kind of thing. Um, You know, just the ability to constantly make more happen and the shit and the, you know, the changes in the shift, I won't get too much into that. Um, But I do think that obviously positioning being limited now, as far as how teams can manage their defenses will, I think, help him too. Because I think teams who are able to fake defenders who are, otherwise not great at certain positions, but were able to perform better relative to what shifts allowed them to do. do. Um, I think that'll definitely help arise because I think it'll expose some worse defenders on the opposite end of the spectrum. And again, it may expose him too, but I definitely think that he will help produce more runs for the Marlins than say, you know, John Birdie would given he was playing on an extended basis. And we saw what that looked like, though. He added his own flashes of production. But I think a rise in his own right is, yeah, he's just going to make that team a whole lot better. You know, him and Segura are going to give that. It's going to definitely take away from that one-dimensional dynamic of the Marlins, where it's like they have guys who can hit for a little bit of power, but they just don't have the most discipline of hitters. And now, you know, Arise, though he is a little, he's aggressive. He's aggressive to an extent, like Eli noted with his contact rate. Right? It works. Like he, you know, he de- he just has a knack for putting back the ball, and that's something that is so hard to find nowadays when everybody is so focused on kind of like just launch angle and you know, kind of trying to hit the ball as far and as high as you possibly can in attempts to hit home runs, I think he, you know, he's kind of playing out of era. I feel like it. it this is like Juan Pierre or Louis Castillo transposed to, you know, 10, 15, 20 years later, where it's like that skill set. It's not as, you know, I would say not as, not going as strong as it was, you know, back in the days of like Kenny Lofton and, you know, the, the two names that I mentioned prior, but arise is kind of hallmark. Um, he's a guy playing in the wrong period, but he's, and he's thriving doing it. So, um, yeah, no, I I, I definitely think he makes the team better. Um, how, how much better it remains to be seen. It's, you know, the Marlins didn't necessarily do all that great with runners in scoring position. Um, he's going to be a guy who's going to get on base a lot. So they, you know, he'll be a table setter. And I think that's his job. He's not going to be expected to drive in a hundred runs, but the guys who, Maybe have a, have the potential to do that. May um, be tasked with more because he's going to provide them more opportunities to drive men in. And again, we'll see how that manifests itself. But I'm you know I'm incredibly excited to see what a full season of him in Miami looks like.
1: Yeah, and on the last topic of discussion, uh, keeping with our eyes, I want to get. On he's also with this team defensively. As he's coming in, Kim announced that he's going to be the starting second baseman. Jazz going to center. Looks like Garrett Cooper is going to be first. And then Wendell Short, um, Segura at third. Um, for Araya's last season he played 60, 65 games at first. and But in his entire career, the most amount of appearances he has is 169 at second base and then 79 appearances in third base. Um, whoever wants to tackle this first, Eli Lewis. Um, h- how do you feel like his defensive metrics um, are really compared to him in, in Miami and how it looks like he would fare defensively in second base, and maybe him compared to jazz, even like, was that the right decision to have him at second and not first and move jazz or, or everything, just how Arias impacts the team
2: defensively. It's an interesting stylistic contrast between Araya and jazz. Like Arise is a very vanilla defender. The the athleticism difference between him and Jazz is night and day between the two. And I think overall Jazz is still the better option there. To keep it short, I'm still wondering whether the optimal defensive arrangement would be having Segura at second and having Arise at third, where you mentioned he still has some experience. Because Segura is the one, I think we've covered this in a previous episode, he's the one that he is a potential plus defensive second baseman. He's playing second base about as well as he ever had this past season with the Phillies. Even though he's older than Arise, um he's he's the more well-rounded, the more his his mechanics as a second baseman are smoother. He checks boxes in a greater variety of aspects of defense but in term, in terms of his uh, turning double plays, in terms of applying tags. All those little things that add up, and even his, um, his his athleticism, as I said, is still a little bit better than Arise's is. So I'll stop there. I don't think Arise is going to really hurt them that much at seconds. Um, the one question is physically whether he's able to hold up at playing second every day or whether he'll need occasional first base and DH time no matter what. Um, and I know what they're doing with Segura and allowing his, his good arm to play at third base um, I don't think there's not a perfect solution. I mean, the way that they mushed this together to get as much offense as possible onto the team is there's no ideal solution. Um But yeah, I'm kind of, I'm questioning exactly what they're, what they're doing. Like uh, I think because rise is not going to hurt you there. If he's comfortable there, I guess that's great. I, I think this is going to, my prediction is that this alignment is going to get scrambled pretty early on in the season. And that uh, ultimately that's why they got these guys in the first place is because they can move around a little bit to make it work and address whatever needs that the roster has at a particular time.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, Arise playing a lot of first base, which I think will only increase his value, even if you're, he's not an excellent defender at either one of the three positions he's going to primarily man, Um, will only make him more valuable in the short term. Uh, and, and that even too, like, you know, he'd have to play first base because we know the concerns with Cooper and his durability. Um, I was just looking at Arise's like shift data as a second baseman, and he tends to play closer to the bag than a lot of other second basemen that I've seen. I don't know with the shift bands how that's going to affect his defense. He's kind of been about an average second baseman when it comes to outs above average. Um, And, you know, slightly below average on a first base side of things. But, yeah, I mean, I think definitely you'll see some times in the season where, you know, Wendell's going to play second and Segura is going to move to second. And there's just going to be a shuffling of things. We may even see Segura play some shortstop. Um, Arise will have to move around to facilitate Cooper's rest days, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I think, you know, the one glimpse of hope that I do have, and I think Jazz may be... Did a little bit better with this uh, as far as defensive metrics go because of the kind of athlete he is. Jazz is known not to have the strongest arm. I believe a couple of years ago, he was in about the 25th percentile in overall arm strength. And if you look at Arise as far as arm strength goes, for a first baseman, he was in about the 35th percentile, according to Savant. Which for a first baseman isn't that bad, but you're also not expected to be throwing the ball that much. I think maybe that would offset his abilities or his 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 deficiencies at the position a little bit because the throw from second base isn't as strenuous on you know the throwing arm as it would be from say third or shortstop. It's just it's generally a shorter distance. Um, I think maybe in that regard, I think the lack of arm strength will be helped by the fact that he's not gonna have to make a lot of long. Rose to first base most of the time, how he looks turning the double play, I think is where I have the most concern because you know, he's despite the fact that he's not tall, he's, he's a little, he's, he's bulkier. He's for a guy playing that position primarily. So his athleticism, I think may be affected in that regard. Um, but given what he's done on the field in the batter's box, I think if he could even just be an average defensive second baseman, And that, I personally, I think that's the 100% um, projection for him is like the best, as far as like 100% best outcome. I think if he's an average second baseman with the bat that we think he's going to give you, then there's no reason to not want to, like Eli said, explore the idea of locking him up long-term. But I think his versatility is still going to have to be something that he employs because, you know, the ability to move around with that bat, the way that the Dodgers can kind of do it with guys who play all over but they also produce at an above average offensive level will only help that team um, in more ways than one.
1: Yeah. So, so with that, I think that's going to be our episode of Fishology, talking all things jazz being on the covers, center field, Luis Arias, Richard Blyer for Matt Barnes, that whole deal, really a wild week, week and a half for the Marlins in terms of news. And hopefully there is more coming soon. But if there is, we'll make sure to record a fishology episode ASAP, bringing it out to you guys. But for myself, Daniel, for Eli, for Louis, we want to thank you for tuning in and always go fish.